Hello and welcome to the second season of the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying, produced by the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Programme and nationally funded by Palliative Care Australia as part of the National Action Plan Project. My name is Lena Keneva. I'm a journalist and facilitator of this series. This is the second season of a further six episodes which will continue to focus on the experience of families whose children have died from a life-limiting condition. Family members bravely share the joys and sorrows of their experience with the hope that their voices can support, inform and better prepare other families who may need to face similar challenges. This is episode five. How do we say goodbye and remember? Funerals, rituals and remembrance. In this episode, we'll hear from two parents and discuss how their family took on the unimaginable task of planning their child's funeral. We'll also explore the importance of family ritual and ways these families continue to celebrate, remember and include the memory of their child in their lives. With me in the studio today is Jess, welcome Jess, and Malia. Jess, tell us a little bit about your family and Henry. Henry, our son, so I've got this Paul and myself and we have three other children as well. Stepson Lockie, Gretel who's just 18 and Billy who's 17 and Henry who would be 15 at the moment. So Henry had a stroke in utero but we didn't know until he was born. And then he had a MRI which showed he'd had the stroke in utero, probably around the middle trimester. So I had this little 13-week-old baby in my arms that looked fine, you know, like the other kids did. So that sort of started our journey at the Royal Children's Hospital pretty much. So he had to have a shunt put in. He had three lots of cataract surgery. He then developed epilepsy. So he would sort of then have daily seizures. And then he had dislocated right hip. He had scoliosis. Then we had to go down the path of putting a peg tube in. Also a fundoplication. He had laryngomalacia. Like he just had lots of things. And so Shepparton's our hospital, local hospital. So being there and then you'd be flying out and down here in ICU. So he was probably flying out um, half a dozen times. When we got sort of the medication sorted, his seizures sort of under control. They're still sort of daily, but they were sort of more controlled. Then his life was, he had a great life. When he was well, he was really well, but then he'd get acutely unwell really quickly and go downhill. And like I said, we'd all go to bed and then the kids would wake up and Henry and I were gone during the night because he'd had a seizure and aspirated and down in Melbourne. So it could be for a week, it could be three weeks, sort of unknown. And when Henry was born, Gretel was three, Billy was two. So these three under three, you know, one with special needs. So we just tried to give Henry his good a life as we could, like we were doing with the other two kids. And and he did, and he was extraordinary. And he was an amazing little boy that, for a kid who couldn't walk, talk or see, one of the things that was his his ability to be able to develop relationships with people, to watch that, especially with young kids. Like he went to a mainstream kinder, you know, he went to a mainstream primary school with um, our other two kids, which we really wanted that to be, that he got to experience that as well and to see those kids develop and understand so quickly how to be, you know, with Henry. So he he had lots going on, 
But once we get the team around us, Team Henry, and all the different departments that he needed to and got the most incredible paediatrician on board, we really did just try to give him the best quality of life and support him when he was unwell as well. So Henry passed away in the hospital under the care of the paediatric palliative care team? Yeah, he did. So it was the 19th of December 2013. um, And it was probably the least dramatic way I entered this hospital. (laughs) So I didn't think that day on the 1st of December I wouldn't take him home. But he ended up, he sort of then got a respiratory illness. I went down to ICU. When we changed sort of from being intubated to being on BiPAP, not as invasive and I ended up having a conversation when we were down there with one of the doctors that had looked after him before and he just said, you know, Jess, maybe we need to think about how long do we do invasive intervention? And so that conversation we'd had many a time with Palcare just sort of slapped you in the face a little bit more. So we got him up to the ward and then we thought we were going to sort of be heading home, leaning off the BiPAP and then he had another met call and he probably had every right not to be here that night. And so I said, ring, you know, uh, Juliana, she wasn't on, uh, one of the other doctors, and she just said maybe this is his sign, his time. So when you do a met call, there's 12 people around the bed. It, it didn't cannulate very well. They're trying to cannulate him. And I actually myself just said stop, just stop, just leave him, do what you can do just to keep him comfortable, which they were able to do. I said stop poking and prodding, and, and they're, they're doing what they do in that situation. So when that time came that, you know, we said that he was palliative and to get the kids down and Paul and to be around him and there was so many hard parts. But one of the hard parts when it came time to turn his feet off for the last time, because I actually said to Palcare, I've been advocating for Henry for six and a half years and now I just want to be his mum. I want you to do the advocating because this, this stage you've done before and I haven't, but don't leave me out of anything. I still want to be part of the decision-making I said, I've got to keep an eye on my other kids as well that were there that are only nine and eight at the time. I said, but I just want to be his mum, you know. And so they allowed that to be. So then when the time came that, you know, the really difficult thing that he had to turn his feet off, that's when I said, I want to do that because my life was geared around his feeds, his medication. So in one hand, it, it felt wrong, but in the other hand, it felt beautiful that I got to do that, that I was the last one to turn his feet off. And understand, again, I was guided beautifully in making that decision because sort of going back a step when he was at hospital the one question I had was how do I hand that little boy over for the last time how can that even be and they provided the time and space for us so we ended up having five hours you know with him which was beautiful and and it was interesting again conversations were happening around me which you're unaware of too and that's how the team they don't just focus on Henry or focus on the parents they focus on the kids as well so Gillian had to talk to Gretel about the spirit and how it leaves and that'll go to heaven and then you're sort of the body's left behind. So then Gretel was having a cuddle of him and she looked at Gillian and said, he still feel he still weighs the same. I'm thinking, what does she mean by that? She goes, it's not right what you said, he still feels the same, weighs the same. So then I said, well, what's that? And she said, how should the spirit? So she thought the spirit would have a weight about it and that the body should feel lighter. And then really like the kids would always put the stethoscope on and uh, they'd be listening to his heartbeat you know when they'd play doctor and nurse which the staff always encouraged you know that so anyway Billy was holding Henry and he put his hand on his heart he said mum I can still feel his heart beating I said no no mate you know you can't I said hang on a minute we'll get the stethoscope so we got that 
And I put it on my chest. I said, can you hear that? And he said, yeah. And then I put it on Henry's. I said, can you hear anything? He said, no. I said, that's because, you know, he's died. So, and then I got to have this, I don't, think, I don't know, they must have discussed it around me, I don't know, but I got to have this really beautiful time with him. It was just sort of me in the room. They all sort of cleared out. And for the first time, I didn't have to think about his hips. I didn't have to think about his scoliosis. I didn't think whether he, if I had him in the wrong position, he might throw up and aspirate. It was just him and I in this beautiful spot of just being able to embrace. And quite often because life was a bit sort of crazy, built around feeds and um, medication, it was just this really beautiful time. But it was interesting because the clock, <laughs> there was a clock on the wall and it was ticking and I could, because it was just me and him in the room and it was silence, the clock seemed a hell of a lot louder than what it was. And Paul happened to walk in the room and I said to him, I won't swear on I said, get rid of that beeping clock. I said, my life has been geared around time. I don't want to know about time. Just get rid of that clock. So he took the clock off the wall and took it out. And then how beautifully he was supported. We bathed Henry in bed. And then the time came to hand that little boy over. And it's amazing how if you can be supported along the way and have those discussions. So we dressed him, had him in bed. And even the way the staff here at the Royal Children's were in, because you know, he passed away at quarter past five, but it was about 10 o'clock. And you can see the physical change in them as well. So the time becomes right, you know, to do it. And when they wheeled him out of the room, and again, because I was sort of a bit more in tune because I spent so much time here, that they had someone on every post of any conceivable way that someone could enter the ward. And only that I noticed, so each, as they were wheeling him out the room, each nurse sort of nodded at each other to say that there's no one coming. And being later at night, there sort of weren't a lot of people anyway. So, yeah, they um, let us down to the to the morgue and um, they said, you know, this is where it ends. So not knowing whether I would see him again, that might have been the sort of final moment. Mm. And that was beautiful. He looked beautiful. And the next step is what we're going to talk about a bit later is what happens after you finally did what you did, that final moments for the family. Mm. I'd like to bring Malia in to this and ask you about your daughter, Abby, who passed away at the age of nine. Tell us a little bit about her and and her life and what the process for your family was too. Thank you, Lena, and thank you for the opportunity to share Abby's story as well and and our family. So Abby was is our eldest of three, so healthy, full-term baby. And then at the age of three, we've noticed that she was getting bruises a lot and getting very, very tired. So we brought her into the Royal Children on Father's Day, Sunday, the 6th of September 2009, and she was diagnosed with leukaemia. Abby was a miracle baby because I've had three miscarriages before that. So when we moved here to Melbourne, we were blessed when we found out that we've had her. So that was really hard for us, you know, as a first-time parents, finally joy in our life, you know, as a child, and, and then to be told that she's got leukaemia. And we were told that at that time was 89% cure. So that was something to, that was hope for us to hold on to, even though it was um, was really tough, you know, to take the news. She responded really, really well. 
she didn't really need a bone transplant, which was what was on the protocol at the time. And so we were all tested to see which parent can have the bone marrow for her. But none of us was actually a match for her. And there was no match either on uh, the bone marrow registry. So we were kind of like looking at, okay, what will happen if things don't go well with her? But then our oncologist was beautiful and said to us, look, let's look at the chemo. And let's go with that treatment and worry about what comes after. And that's exactly what we did. During the treatment, we were then placed to find out that we, I was carrying another child. As a parent, I still remember thinking about it. Okay, now she could be a match. We were thinking that she would be the one saving Appy if anything happened. And so we had Jazzy and we got Abby involved in Chassie's whole naming and everything and she named her Chassie and the thing was you know if she was a boy it was going to be Aladdin right because that was her favorite princess story at the time and so we were hoping oh my gosh you know it wasn't going to be a boy because we're going to have Aladdin we were hoping for a girl so we had a girl and she named her so Chassie is very honored to be named by her older sister so she went through the treatment finished the treatment November our oncologist at the time was saying to us, look, she's got two more weeks of oral chemo and then that will be it for her. You know, I remember I was very worried because this was home for us and the people around it was the, all the people that we know. And I remember asking him the ifs and the buts, right? And he did say to us, look, she responded really well. Take it as, you know, and go enjoy life, not to worry. So we did that. But at the same time, we found out I was pregnant with our third child, which was our son, Joshua. So we thought, wow, that was a blessing, yeah? This is a sign of hope for us. Let's move on and enjoy life. And we did that. Abby started prep, loved school and everything, and music. She went back. She loves music. She loves dancing. She loves swimming. It's okay. She was obviously living her life to the fullest. And you were helping her do that. What happened then? So, um, it's, it's a hard because, yeah. So it went on. She started prep in 2012. Our son born in 2012 as well. Life was very, very busy, yeah. And we went on, you know, our holiday, the school holiday, the first school holidays. She started again to feel unwell in Turkey, which is her favourite place. And I said to Happy that night, something is not quite right. You know your gut feeling as a mum, yeah? Yeah. And he goes, you know, let's let's sleep another night and see what happened. And then it didn't sit right with me on that first night. So we packed the kids in the car, six-week-year-old baby at the time, and 18, 17-month-old, and Abby, five, and we head back to the Royal Children. And then that was the start of our journey. We found out that... She relapsed and went into her spinal fluid. So we start the next journey. I think the hardest part was to explain to Appy what was happening. Because she was of, of an age. She yes, was understanding. Yes, yeah. From that day on, we have to make clear to Appy what was going to start. Um, she understood. She was very intelligent at her age at that time, very wise beyond her years at the time. So we sat her down. I remember Dr. Molly walked in the room and looked at us. Beautiful. And, you know, we all cry. had a moment there <laughs> by the bed. So she started the next journey. 
went through radiation this time with Abby. She got really upset and said, why? And mum, she picked herself up again and she goes, well, what can we do? There's nothing we can do, you know, at five years of age. Let's soldier on, mum. We can do this. We can get cancer's butt to the sun and burn it. Yeah, that was her favourite <laughs> nice saying one. on the ward. So we started and then it went really, really well again. She responded really well. And then probably eight months into the treatment, she relapsed again. The second relapse, we decided to not share with her because every treatment we had to share with her. But this time around, we didn't share with her. So we thought, you know, we kept it to ourselves and just let her have a better life because at that stage, her whole life was spending at the old hospital and here. So I said to Happy, you know, look, we're not going to tell her. But Abby was very smart because she knew her medication. So when she gets the medication, she goes, why am I taking this? I'm not meant to take this because I'm on maintenance. And so we will explain to her, we'll come up with something to cover that up. That didn't last long because there was a trial that was coming up and the team thought that she fits the trial. So we thought, oh my gosh, how are we going to tell Abby to come back here for the trial? Happy was saying to me, what shall we do? I said, oh, we have to be honest with her. So we took her to the beach, which is her favourite place, and I said to Abby, I have to confess something. She said, what is it, Mum? So I have to explain to Abby this is what's going to happen. And she got really upset with me because everything along until this point, it was actually with honesty. We were open with each other. And she said to me, I remember she said to me, Mum, we have always been honest with me. And no matter how bad things are, the truth will set you free. (laughs) She was a philosopher at a very young age. She was. She said, I know, I know it's hard for you, but you had to remember it is hard for me too. Mm -hmm. So... That was the point where I made a promise to her, okay, regardless how bad things is, I'm going to be honest with you. And it made our journey into palliative, I don't want to say easy, but the transition into palliative was smoothly because she knew when the trial happened and it didn't work. She relapsed again on the trial. At that stage then, we knew where we were going to head. The road was starting to get narrow (laughs) and the light and the the shine of this beautiful girl that we had, this amazing nine years and looking at her legacy that she left with families here on Kookaburra Ward and in the hospital, the cleaners, everybody, (laughs) happy will know everybody's name. We walk into the hospital and everybody, you know, the orderly will call out, hey, apps, you know, and she will know people by name. So when we were told, unfortunately, things were, you know, for Abby, we wanted Abby to be in that conversation. And she said, well, what does that mean? I do not want to be in hospital. At that stage, throughout Abby's journey, we made decision for her as parents. We will book everything medically and everything else. This time, we sat back and I said to my husband, it is time for us to give her the power back in her hands. Let her make decisions. See where she's going to take us with things. 
She sat up and she said, okay, this is what I want. I don't want to be in the hospital. I don't want any lines on me. I don't want any tubes on me. I want to be free. I want to get out there and enjoy life, whatever I have. And so we made a decision, okay, we'll do that. So we went to Cairns. The team didn't think we'll make it to Cairns <laughs> because of the, the travel. With her at that stage, her cancer was 93% in her marrow, so it was bad. If we decided not, I'm going to do it my way. And went to Cairns, did all the cold coast, everything in Cairns, have her coconut that she's always wanted to go to Fiji and have it and go to Samoa, where we were originally from. Did all that did all the rides that she can do, swim as much as she can. And then we came back home, lived her life, I'll tell you what, lived right down to her last breath. I remember she was still shopping at High Point, buying all Shopkins and whatever you, looking up Shopkins, taking my brother with her, walking with her walker into the shopping centre right up, you know, the day before she passed. We were told a week or two but we ended up with a couple of months. And it was just amazing. It was a memory for us as well, and that was her thing. Mum, don't you worry. I'm going to make memories for you to enjoy when I'm gone. And she did. She lived every bit of life that she had in those last few months of her life. It was just amazing. It's something that we can look back and be grateful and thankful for, for her for, for doing that for us. And she passed away at home? She did. She passed away at home. The team was very grateful for the palliative team, so she did everything her way. Everything was her. We have to follow her wishes, and as we were saying, handed back the power to her in her hands to have all the control that she wants, you know, and watch us follow, yeah? And that's what we did, and we honour her through that way. When we finally went home, we allow everyone to come to the house. So all her friends will stop in, have a play with her, and then they'll leave, or they'll just sit there and she will go to sleep, and they'll just sit there and watch a movie with her, right? And then when it's time for dinner, she'll wake up and they'll be around, come on, let's have dinner, and then back again. But, yeah, it was true to Abby's style. It was really honouring her towards the end, yeah. yeah. We're here really to talk about, you know, what happens next, the funerals, the rituals, the remembrance. And I'm guessing you had that conversation with Abby? We did. So I was thinking, okay, how can I use the people, my loved ones, the people around me? And my sister was the one that I was thinking of, my youngest sister. So I rang her up and I said, how, how do you feel if I let you look after the funeral director and all that, yeah? Um, and she goes, yeah, fine. So my sister stepped in. Um, we had a friend that was a funeral director at the time. He was wonderful. So I sort of allocate tasks out to everyone. We didn't have families here in Melbourne. So our family here in Melbourne is my mum's group because I joined a mum's group when Abby was only six weeks old. So the five ladies, like my sisters here in Melbourne, they all were there right from the beginning of our journey, right to this time now that where we are. They all wanted to do something, and I knew that everybody that we were surrounded with 
just wanted to do something for us, but they don't know what to do. So I thought to myself, I'm a one that I'm a giver. <laughs> I'm the one that always step out and help and give. So I have to put myself in the shoes of those people as well and think, okay, if I was on that side, I would want to do something. So I would want to, you know, be allocated a task. So that's exactly what I did. So all my five friends, one of them was looking after the food. Abby now knew about what was going on. So when we were in Cairns and one night we were singing and she said to me, Mum, I know I'm going to die. And I was trying to hold my tears back at the time. And um, she goes, I know it's sad, Mum. I know I'm, I'm so sorry to bring it up. And then I thought, no, no, we'll talk about it. You know, maybe this is an opportunity. And then she said, OK, I'm not so worried about me because I won't be there, right? Um, but I'm more worried about my friends and my sister and my brother. And I said, what do you mean about that absence? She goes, well, they're going to really miss me. And I said, okay. And she goes, so I want, I want it for them. I want you to, to use everything that I love. I love music. I love performing. You know, she was naming. I love all these songs. I want you to create something that will remember me, but it will also make them feel that, you know, they're not missing me so much. Make them laugh. Make them enjoy my day and not be so, so sad. Big call for a child. Yes. And so we did exactly that. Abby organised pretty much her whole funeral, what songs to go in, who was going to carry her, you know, the ball bearers and all that, what the ball bearers is going to wear. Some very good friends came on the day and they took photos of everything, right? Because, you know, when you're in consumed with that you know you don't have the time to look around and so a very good friend filmed the whole service and then another good friend took all the photos and created an album out of those photos and so we still have got the album you know looking back at it I'm thinking wow that was amazing and then she said to my sister you have to let people know that this, my funeral, is not going to be a traditional funeral. So my sister did just that. Everybody listens to Abby, my brother. We all listen. We all listen, took on everything. So her deputy principal, who was a performing arts teacher at the time, created a, a script, you know, so they did all the performing. They dance, they sing. <laughs> all the, you know, the they all dress up. So it was at her school on an oval because we knew that there was a lot of people that wanted to attend, yeah, and there was a lot of kids that wanted to be there. So it was it was really a celebration of her life and she really wanted to celebrate her life. As she said to me, Mum, I wanted to celebrate who I am and what I am, I, my love for music, my love for performing, my love for people, my love for my caring, compassion. So want it to be out there. But at the same time, I, you know, I have to think about my friends and my sister and my brother and the people that I've left behind because they are the ones that are affected mostly. And I know that you will be mostly affected, Mum. You know, and I say, yeah, I will. How am I talking to you to discuss about your funeral, Abby? And um, she said, Ma, you know, 
I told you right from. Do you remember that day when we made a promise that you will tell me the truth? And I said, Yeah. Well, isn't that you know set you free? Doesn't make you feel like you you're free? And I said, Yeah, I am free, but I I just can't. I just can't bring myself talking to an eight year old. Discussing about her funeral—that's not right. That doesn't seem right, Abby. And she goes, "Well, it's it's just reality. It's life, Mum. You got to look at it that way." And I said, "Okay." One thing that I'm glad that you know, and even till now, as a parent, is that honesty. I'm just going to come across to Jess and say, Henry was a lot younger. How did this kind of thing resonate with you in terms of deciding? What would be his funeral? What would be his legacy? How were you planning to honour that? Yeah, like I said, just being younger, and thanks for sharing that, um, Marley, and about Abby, what an extraordinary young girl that is. So with Henry being nonverbal, you know, he couldn't express what he needed and, you know, my life caring for him was trying to look at the signs of whether he was in pain, you know, what he was feeling. So I found that, with his funeral, you take on not just how Henry's going to be, but how the family is going to be after that. So there's sort of some points along the way that, and because we do have to think about them dying, which is just not what you want to have to do with your kids. But it's the reality of having a child with a life-limiting illness. So there are times along the way that, and especially when you get really unwell, and I'll be sitting around his bed and I see you, and they're the times that you, you think, you know, there's a lot of downtime, quiet time, and you start to put that sort of thought process that I think, oh, if he doesn't come out of this and he dies, you know, and you almost want to be prepared. Like you want to prepare, but I don't think you can ever really be prepared. We were watching a show one day, Paul and I, I don't know, it was a movie or something, and it had about cremation. And um, I sort of thought that was an, an opportunity to bring up. I said, oh, Paul, you know, I want to be cremated. He's like, oh, do we have to talk about this now? And I said, oh, well, I just can't talk to you after it, the event. I said, I just want to let you know that. Because I had this thought about, you know, I wanted Henry cremated. Um, and I thought that was a bit of an opening in to be able to talk about that. And I said to him, I go, you know, I want Henry to be cremated. He goes, oh, we don't have to go there. Do we have to think about that? And I said, yeah, look, it is something we need to think about. And I actually feel really strongly about it. But I know it's just not solely my decision, but I don't think I could do the other. And where that sort of came from, I went to a friend's daughter's funeral and they had a graveside funeral and Henry was with me and I was the last one to leave like I couldn't and I looked and thought one thing I know I can't do I can't put that little boy in a hole in the ground and walk away that moment on he's beside me in his wheelchair and I'm looking and think I can't do that so that was the defining moment again that I thought there's two ways it can happen you know a burial or cremation and I knew I couldn't do one of them so then I had to sort of start the journey of knowing that that's what I wanted and sort of getting Paul on board with that as well. Yeah, so when Henry was in palliative, so thinking about those things along the way. But it's like anything, you can have the thought and when the reality comes, when the moment actually comes that you've got to make those decisions. There was a song, it was a Dolly Parton song, it's um, To Know Him Is To Love Him. And I heard that one time I was playing some music and on the CD that I'd bought and I thought, wow, that just sums Henry up. To know him is to love him, and that's what everyone did for. Like I said, he didn't share a word, but everyone adored him. He only ever built relationships, and because we use words to build relationships, but we can also use them to muck them up. And <laughs> <laughs> he never ever lost a friend. He only 
gathered people around him. So yeah, I sort of put that song away in the back of my head, thought that'd be something you could play, you know, to photos at the funeral. And that if you ever listen to it, it's just the whole thing just felt like they wrote it for Henry. So you sort of lock away, you just keep sort of locking away different things that you think, oh yeah, I could see that happening at the funeral. But then when he's when he was in hospital and he'd get well again, you'd sort of put that to the back of your mind again and think, well, okay, I've got that there, but I don't have to think about it again now. Malia, was that something that you discussed with Abby, whether she was buried or cremated? Yes. It's a big decision, a big discussion. It was, but because she loves nature and she did say, I don't want to be cremated. I want it to be buried. At the time as well, I was glad that she did and only because I was thinking I wanted a place to go to, I wanted somewhere to go to and just to be with her. So in my head, when we go to the cemetery, I know that she's down here. And that was another thing. She said, Mum, and I don't want fake flowers. I want real flowers. So when you come to visit me, you have to bring real flowers. And we honour that because now... We, where every time, every weekend we go to see her, we take her real flowers. And that was Abby. So she was very much knew what she wanted us to do. No fake flowers, mum. I don't want fake flowers. You have to bring real flowers. And if you can't find real flowers, you, you plant flowers and cut it and bring it to my graveside. And so that's what we did. Talk about the rest of the family. How did both of you talk to your children about the passing of your other child. How did you talk? Well, again, that was sort of, for us, was being supported by palliative care. We had a discussion with Jen at one stage. That was, for me, was really challenging. You know, how do I tell them? How do you bring that up, you know, with your children? And and so we had a discussion about that. And then the kids, Henry was in hospital at the time and the kids and the Paul came down and I said to Jen, can you help us? She said, yeah. So we got into the room and the kids were there and it was quite funny because Billy was upside down on the couch and Gretel was in the corner and sort of mucking around and, and I wanted to say to them, now, I've got a very important conversation to have with you. <laughs> Can you please sit down? And Jen just went, leave them, leave them where they are. And I said, can you do it? <laughs> you know, sort of whisper. So she just talked to them about when Henry, you know, he's been unwell, you know that, and not saying this is the time, but, you know, that Henry will die? Have you got any sort of questions around that? And so they didn't ask a lot, but I felt she did it in a far better way. She said, you won't get it wrong. But I felt like it was like a really important conversation. (laughs) So I needed their utmost attention. So she handled, you know, that beautifully. And it was interesting because then when he was in, I went home because it was my sister's birthday. And the nurse said, he's fine. We'll look after him. You know, go home. Went home, went out, you know, for tea for my sister's birthday. And then I was leaving that next day and Billy was at the stove cooking hot dogs. He said, where are you going? I said, oh, I've got to go back to the Royal Children's for Henry. He goes, is he dead? I went, no. He goes, okay, see ya. And I thought, well, okay, he was aware of the conversation, being upside down. And then Gretel said to me when I was leaving, she said, oh, mum, can you get me a photo of Henry? And I said, yeah, of course I can. She goes, because I got that photo frame for my birthday. And she goes, I want to put a photo in it because if he dies. And I said, yeah, of course I can. You know, and hugged him. So it was sort of really good that it got planted and you never know with kids how they're going to consume or how it'll look for them so I said yeah of course I will so she's still got that you know on her desk which is awesome and sort of with the cremation side of it so again it was something that I just could not do you know the opposite of so when he became palliative then it hit us in the face you know that those thoughts you can have and then I said to Paul and Paul really struggled with the kids thinking we burnt him 
you know, what do we do? I can't have them think that. I said, okay. I said, look, I'm not sure how to go about it again. So I spoke to Juliana, who then she said, leave it with me. She went to the palliative care team and they came back in the most beautiful way you could ever put it. So Juliana sat with Paul and I and told us what they'd said. And we were just, wow. And then we got the kids in. And so Juliana just sat them down and said, when Henry dies, there's two ways that it can happen afterwards. He can be buried or he can be cremated. And what cremated means is that they will use heat and Henry will turn into sand. It was it just was right and they went, okay. And then after he passed away when we were driving home, Billy was in the back of the car and he said, hey, Mum, does that mean I'm made of sand? <laughs> I said, mate, there's a bit of all of us that's made of sand. And so that, for them, sat, it sat for Paul, it sat for me, for how it needed to be with all of us individually. And for the kids at that age, you know, it sat for them. And I know now that they know what it is. But at that time, and I actually told the funeral director, and he said, I've never been in this game for 35 years and I've never heard it explained like that. And I've seen families really struggle with that. He said, I'm going to use that. <laughs> I said, use away. I said, because how that's worked for us you know, has been extraordinary. So you put you put in thought along the way, but then that time comes. Um, and we had a really short time frame because he died on the 19th of December and Christmas was around the corner. So we didn't want to wait till after Christmas, didn't want to have it Christmas Eve. So he passed away on the Thursday. He stayed here overnight and then we drove back on. We stayed at Ronald McDonald House, which we spent a lot of time at. We drove home on the Friday and then as soon as I got home, we had, oh, this Juliana came in. She said, look, after, just after he passed away, I said, you know, Jess, I don't want to have to do this, but I sort of got to, do you know which funeral home you want to use because we need to get the death certificate. On the way home, you know, in the car, I'm doing the funeral notice, you know, for the paper, um, having to type that up. And then it, I lost it on the computer. Like I didn't, for some reason, didn't save or whatever. And I'd spent like the hour of the drive home typing up what I want to type up anyway. Then you sort of had to do a quicker version pretty much walked in the door not long after the funeral director was there. You know, the, the priest came around as well and family um, were coming around. Mum and Dad wanted to come and see me. And so it was this bit of, a little bit of chaos there for a while, but understood, but I'm trying to get this funeral process done. And Annie, my sister, was enormous. She um, did the booklet up for us and she just took control and was able to do that. It's sort of funny, the different moments that you have. So I was a little bit overwhelmed, obviously, just lost my son and but all this sort of happening around and really only had two days to prepare. And one stage I went up to the room and I texted Tran. I said, Tran, come up to the bedroom. And I said, what do you wear to your child's funeral? <laughs> what do I wear? I don't know what to wear. And she goes, it's okay, come here. And we walked in the wardrobe and she said, I'll go get you something. So she went out and she um, bought some clothes for me. And that was so all those little things that, you know, you're sort of thinking of along the way. And then there was, they rang on the Friday as well to say that our little man was back in Shep at the funeral home. I said, okay. And they said, do you want to come and see him? I said, yeah, I do. I was like, as a mum, I just wanted to make sure he was okay, that he got here. And um, I said to Paul, do you want to? And he said, no. So when they rang, they said, oh, what time do you want to come? And I went, oh, he's due for a feed at, um, uh, no, he's not. <laughs> I said, how about 10 o'clock tomorrow? And they said, yeah. So go in there, and I want to go on my own. I said again to Paul, do you want to see him? No, no, I'm fine. I'm okay. No worries. And so I walked in there, met the funeral director again, who I'd known for a long time, and he said, you're right? And I said, yeah, I'm okay. So to see a white coffin, (laughs) 
and walking into that room to the point where you can see your child in a coffin. It took me to my knees like nothing can, I don't think. And I cried and cried and cried like I've never, you know. But it was like this this release. It was like what I needed to do, but not in a public space. I needed to do it just for me and for him. Um, And it was like this almost a bit of a cleansing. And and his favourite book was called A Friend Like You, which is an extraordinary book again that's about a panda and a monkey and their journey. They bump into each other and panda can't move like monkey can. It sort of reminded me of Billy and Henry a little bit or a child that can move freely and one that can't. So it's about monkey learning to slow down and panda trying to catch up and their journey into the to see these beautiful flowers that release. So their journey up and just understanding each other and lucky to have a friend like you for each of them, you know, likewise. So that was his favourite book. Everything was geared around that. And so I rang Sharam, a girlfriend. I said, I need his book. I need to read him a friend like you because we read that to him just after you know, when he passed away not long afterwards. She goes, okay. So she came to get me the book. I knew where it was. And she was walking. I said, you don't have to come in. You know, don't, I don't want you to see this. You know, you shouldn't have to. She goes, I'm okay. You know, so she hugged me and she came over and saw him. So once I could read in the story, she said, do you want me to stay? And I said, no, I'm okay. So then I could read in the story and then I was just with him. Like once I got that sort of outpouring of emotion, I sat in a red and I was there for a couple of hours with him and I made sure he was tucked in and, you know, <laughs> so then, um, got home and I said to Paul, like, it was like I had this, you know, release and I felt like I was in a stronger place almost to continue to organise the funeral. And I said to Paul, I just want to let you know, this is so up to you, but I feel like it's been this really sort of outpouring and cleansing. And he said, no, no, I'm still okay and that's fine. There's nothing, no issue at all with that. So what we did, his funeral was on the Monday, but one thing I knew I didn't want, I didn't want his coffin at the funeral because he... He was in prep. He died the second last day of prep. And I didn't want his little prep mates to have to see that. I knew they were going to be there. But I didn't want them to be that visual of seeing a little coffin, you know. So I decided we just had a photo there. So basically we did our service on the Sunday night. So Gretel made a slideshow and made some music and we got to be with him. And so we all sort of got to have, you know, our outpouring. And then I said, to the kids, do you want to see Henry? And oh, I didn't know what to do. They said, Mum, can we see him? I didn't know what to do. So I rang Jen. Hey, Jen, <laughs> from Pelcare. I said, what do I do? You know, they want to see him. She said, let them. Just explain mm. what he'll be like. You know, it's gonna, he's going to be different to what he was when we left the hospital. So I explained to them. I said, look, he'll be cold. You know, that's probably the main difference. He still looks like Henry. You know, I came and saw him yesterday. And they said, yeah, they were right. So they went up and were with him. Then Paul got drawn. I sort of felt him on my shoulder and he got drawn over. So I'm glad he sort of got to have that. And I hope that sits with him that he got to do that as well. And then when we were leaving, Gretel said, Mum, why can't I have time on my own with him? I said, you can have time on your own. That's fine. So she went in and had some time. And so we all left having had this, like Lucky was with us, Lucky's mum and Alana, who was Henry's carer, who I adore. And we almost had that. It's like for us, that was our funeral. So then the, the actual funeral itself wasn't as distressing um, as it would be because I sort of didn't want my grief to play out in front of everyone as much. So it's funny, like all those thoughts you put in and if you can see it sort of play out and I didn't want a full blown, like I'm Catholic, but I didn't want that. I didn't want it to be about the service. I wanted it to be about Henry and we were able to, and the priest who was a young 
priest and he was a cool dude and he sang a song that he, he'd written but he adapted to Henry and I didn't know he was going to do that. And got you know, the teacher, his prep teacher, who adored him, the carer that we um, he had as a full-time carer at school who'd looked after him previously at home as well. We got the, them to carry up. You know, his school polo, one of the, he made a snowman with Joe at school, took those up. The kids took, you know, his glasses, his H teddy, which had a H on the front. You know, they took symbols up as well. So involving them in that, they got up and did a a prayer of the faithful. And when it came to his eulogy, I sort of had in my head throughout the journey what I'd say. But then the time comes. So on that Friday night, I'm sitting up in bed and I'm trying to type it. And I found myself wanting to thank everyone, like, make it more about the people that almost took us on the journey and assisted us. So I'm typing away and I've actually fallen asleep with my laptop on my knee and half asleep and I sort of woke up and anyway, the next day I sort of finished and I gave it to Alana to have a look. I said, can you just read over this and let me know what you think? And she read it. She said, look, it's it's good. She said, but why don't you just do it as his mum? Not thank everyone, but make it about you and him and being his mum. I went, yeah, so I screwed it up, threw it away, and I wrote just from me, and it ended up being half a page instead of like two pages, um, and really shared about what he meant to me and our family and how much it was a privilege to be that little boy's mum. It was an utter privilege, who he made me, who he brought into our world, and they're the people you earn because the day you after your child passed away or the day it happened it was here, um, you walk out that door and you lose so much more than just your child because we were on a six-year journey but a three-year journey with Palcare. And so I yearned that. I yearned my son, but I yearned those relationships because we'd have some fun, you know. We'd muck around and uh, the unlimited amount of time you were here. And then you sort of got to go be this everyday person, but you've had this extraordinary experience I still miss who I was with him. Like we made a really good team and I'd do, it was 24-7 and I'd do him more and Paul would do the other kids. We'd do it all together as well, but if something happened with Henry. So I felt like his funeral was as I sort of planned it as such. And then when we left the funeral home, I went to the funeral director and I said, oh, okay, you know, we're finished now. And he said, do you want to put the lid on? I said, yep, I do. So I went over and I kissed him and when he passed away I just said to him straight after that that I leant over him and said well done little mate because I couldn't have asked any more of that little boy and so to be able to tuck him in for the last time and put the lid on the coffin I'm glad he suggested that and I did I screwed the lid on the coffin it was the last time I saw him so I didn't have to really think about like you're saying Malia that I didn't have to think about the process of the cremation but I knew that that was our goodbye our last moment with him other than the process of burying him in the ground as well. And for me, I am who I am today because I have him at home. I hug him every day. I kiss him. He comes out for birthdays. He is part of his birthday. We sit him on the birthday chair and play him Stevie Wonder's happy birthday like I annoyingly do with everybody in the family. So he is, I don't know where I'd be if I did not have that. So to be able to share that in a space that we all do what we do and we all, what is comfortable and but I've sort of thought to be able to share that with other families would be good, but the platform to do that, I would never do it if you know what I mean, but that was sort of the, the process. And we could just sort of 
then go through catching up with people afterwards after that. How's this resonating with you, Malia? We started off by asking about how you talk to your children about this, but we've moved, I think, towards, you know, you and your child at the end and, and how the funeral played out. We had happy home because she knew in herself that she wasn't well, that her health was declined because of the few things that she couldn't do. And she couldn't, or she wouldn't last like four hours or five hours in a time. So she, she could tell that her health was declining. And then one of the things that she was concerned about it, and she said to me, Mum, do you know all the bad people that did bad things to everyone, like murderers and all that? Um, when they die, where do they go? And then I said, Well, in the Bible, so I started to bring up, you know, the Bible, they they go to, to hell. That's what I know. So I was honest with her and told her. And she goes, okay, where is hell? Is it closer to heaven? Or, you know, so she was starting to talk like that. And, and I went, yeah, maybe not. Maybe it's not closer. Because, you know, if you look at the prison, you know, here in our world, the prison is far away. And they, you know, they have to keep those people away from the good people like us. So we'll probably be the same yeah in heaven would be the hell would be on the other side and and I said why and she goes well I'm thinking just in case I get to heaven and grandma because I was saying to her because my mom I was looked after by my grandmother so I said you know Nana will be there waiting for you and all the people you know that will be waiting for you and then she said what if I get there and they forgot about me and nobody to wait for me. So what would happen? You know, those bad people will probably come and take me. So that's when I've noticed that her health was declined, like she was feeling it in herself. So we talk a lot about heaven and what it looks like. We were singing songs and saying, you know, Nana will be there. And I was telling her about Nana. And and I said, are you worried? And she goes, well, I'm just worried about the bad people. I said, there will be police there, just like here. And they will look after. Nobody will take you. Because you, how old are you absent? She goes, nine. And I said, well, you're nine, yes. But I think the spiritual world, I think you're more than nine. I think you're probably 50 or more. And she goes, no, 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 no. I'm nine. Mom. <laughs> and so that was a kind of conversation to try. And because I know that you worry about the kids, how they worry about dying. And... I've always had that open relationship with her. And because she was so wise and she can verbalise, which is different with hearing Henry's um, situation, we were able to have those communication and I was able to know what was going on in her mind and she was open up with me as well with that. So I knew her worries. Did she talk about this with your other children, with her, you know, with her siblings? Did she discuss that? any of this with him or did they talk to her about it? No, they didn't because Jessie at the time, she was um, five and Joshua was three. Very small. So they were very small. They knew that she was unwell and they knew that she was going to go to see Great Nan and she was going to be an angel and she will be an angel to look after them. So she will always say to them, you've got to listen to mum. You've got to look after my Shopkins because she had a collection of Shopkins. You have to look after, you know, my piano. You have to look after my kids because she played piano. She had musical instruments and all that. And they were going through 
right to the last day of her last day, they were on her bed singing and she couldn't talk on that Sunday. But the one thing that just before that Sunday that she was still able to talk and she goes, Mum, what colour is my coffin? And I said, I said, okay, apps, what colour do you want? And she goes, I want blue. Right, so I said, okay, and she goes, and I want the kids to stick all, you know, because she collect all the Shopkins, and she will have the doubles, you know, because it comes here to open up like a surprise, and she had a jar full of doubles, so she want all those Shopkins to be stuck on the coffin. I said, okay, all right, so we had her on a recliner in the living room because she still wants her friends to come around. So her friends were still, they were happy to come around and just sit with her and one of you. And right up to that Sunday, <laughs> two of her friends, kids being kids, they have disagreements. And she could hear them and she called out, I can hear you guys disagree. Why don't you just get along? And then the girls, you know, started goes, oh, Apsis actually can hear us still. And she can still talk. So... It was a, a beautiful moment for those kids because they were involved with her right through her life, through the journey here, right down to her last day. And I, as a parent, be, both me and hubby and all of us, decided that we didn't want to take that away from her. And we want the kids to be there to see it. And it was an invitation Parents didn't have to come around if they weren't comfortable with it, but they were happy. They were actually happy that our doors were open and that they could come and go and be with Abby. So we have decided to take her to the funeral place and have her with whatever that they need to do. So when she passed at home, three o'clock on Monday, she waited for my sister. She knew my sister was flying over. My sister arrived, so she had a moment. She squeezed her hand, and then my sister said, you know that Auntie Tava's here? We were reading, they were reading her, her book. We were having a song. The kids just finished school, so they all came after school, so her friends were around. And then in the room, the one, the one word, that her last word was mum. That's a great memory. That's a great memory. You know, you just wanted another minute or two, yeah? So I was japping it in and my sister said, no, got to let her go. Everybody at that stage, they all knew what to do. You yeah? had them all lined they up. All, you know, they all knew what to do. The school all knew what to do. The play and the production have already started there three weeks before or a month before that. So they, they were all in. Yeah, so everybody knew what was happening. We had a moment with her in the room. My sister made the call. And then an hour later, my sister-in-law made the announcement on the, you know, on the Facebook or wherever platforms that there were on there, and she was the one that did that. I just focused on Jazz and Josh at that stage because my whole time was with Appy. And Jazz and Josh is no um, Jess. You know, your other kids missed out. I That was the moment I have to help them. Jess said to me, does that mean I've got my angel now? I said, yeah, it's just your angel now. And so what are we going to do with Abby's body, Mum? And I said, well, 
we're going to have a nice place that we're going to bury her in. And we're going to go and see her every day and every weekend if we can. Joshua was sitting there unsure, three years old, but Jesse was more aware, five years old. And funeral director said, have her at home. So we had her on a bed. My brother was doing all the shopkin, getting everything ready, and we just sat there. We slept in a room, her room with her, and then early hours in the morning at 7 o'clock, the door knocked, and that was when they came to take her. So we went, we followed her. And we wanted her to come back home. So we brought her back home. My brother had her bed all done and we had her on her bed. And it was just like Abby sleeping. So her brother and her sister were able to go in and people were still, you know, the invitation was still open for people, you know, to say their farewell. And a lot of them came, the people that were traveling from interstate, friends, you know, and families that were coming down came over and had a chance to come in. And they were all surprised in the fact that she just looks like she was sleeping on her bed. And Jazzy and Josh and the, and the kids at that time, her friends were nine years of age at that time. Yeah? All the mums group friends, they were all nine. The others were 10, 11 from school. Kids from school were coming over and they were playing. Like we still, my sister took photos and videos of them. Like they were playing around with all those Shopkins and they were playing Uno and the games that she loves to play. They were singing to her. They were on her bed. They were touching her hair. They were just like Abby was asleep. And my son used to run in and say, shh, that Abby was sleeping and the kids would be playing cards around her um, in her room. So she passed on, on Monday and we had her funeral on Saturday. That's how long we could keep her. We wanted to keep her for as long as we can. But just going back to what Chess was saying in writing your eulogy, here I am, don't have anything to worry about because everybody I've allocated, the only thing I should be doing is writing a eulogy. And I struggle with that as well. Like, how can you write a eulogy for a child that lived a life? How can you put all the nine years and everything in that piece of paper just for that, what, 20 minutes? So I left it, but because of what Abby wanted was to have the whole community that she loved and everybody that wanted to be part of her day. So we had her oncologist speak on behalf of her medical, her nurses is their relationship, her kindergarten teacher, the principal, spoke about her life in the kindergarten and that and what she brought in, the school, all the friends that, you know, the mums of her friends and that. So they've all really captured her life there, some of part of it. And so what I did was actually share... I thought it was time to be honest with the staff then, especially her oncologist was sitting there, the three of them that were sitting in um, the serv- at her celebration, the naughty things that Abby used to do right? <laughs> when we get out of the hospital, when she's not supposed to go to the beach and have a swim, and I will clad wrap Abby up and get the wetsuit that I can find and put her in the ocean, and she will go surf the waves 
she went for a bike ride and she came back and oh my gosh her knees were all bad and I said Happy you know that we weren't meant to come out to Torquay you know after the hospital we were meant to be staying over there because you neutropenic you know and all that and she goes oh I'm so sorry mum so when we come back to our appointment and I remember her oncologist was asking her what happened to your knees and she goes oh no it was just a style you know I found out on YouTube that you can actually you know but that was us bandaging up Abby's, you know, injuries from the things that we do that we weren't meant to do. And I remember sharing all those and everybody in the room, they were just laughing because that was Abby. And we will come in and um, her oncologist will ask, so how was your little break, Abby? Oh, it was fantastic. What did you get up to? Nothing much. I was just playing in the backyard, you know, and play with my sister and my brother. And then she'll look over at me and she'll wink because we have spent that weekend out in Torquay or out in the bush, just taking her out. The minute we escape from the hospital, we make sure that every minute of that three days was thoroughly enjoyed by her. She volunteered to speak up at a lot of foundations at such a young age, six, seven, eight was, you know, she started speaking publicly around six years old about her journey to raise awareness. That was her whole heart. I remember the two days because her vision was to support families because she knew how important family is in her journey. Without it, it was impossible. But in the ward when she comes in, there's a lot of kids without, you know, their siblings around or the family support or the community like she is. And so she will always come back and, like, that's happy on the ward and she knows everybody. That was who she was, her life, yeah, it was so big. So when she wanted, you know, she said, you know, Mum, when I'm finished... When I'm, you know, well and old, I'm going to build the biggest mansion ever and every parent and family will come and stay at it. And I said, oh, that was a fantastic idea, Abby. Let's hope, you know, it will happen. And she goes, yeah, it will happen. So when her health declined, I remember the, the last two days and she called me in her bedroom and she said, Mom, do you know that dream that I've always had? And I said, yeah, to building a mansion. Yeah, 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 I remember. I remember you always talk about it. And she goes, well, it's not going to happen now, is it, Mum? And I said, well, but you know what? When you go, you can pray from heaven and sprinkle down things to all the organisations that are helping kids with cancer to let them have the best so that they can help more kids. How about that? And she goes, hmm, no, don't think it will work. <laughs> and, um, and so she goes, okay. And I said to her, look, I can't promise you. I can't promise you anything that I honestly, I'm going to be honest with you now, that I won't be able to, to carry on. And um, she goes, oh, fair enough, mum, fair enough. So... With that, I took with me to our friends and the family after her burial, which was the next day on Sunday. I took it to them, Abby's vision of supporting kids with 
cancer and their families and how important togetherness was for her in her journey. Born the foundation, her foundation, which is called the Abizolo Foundation. And beautiful people that she brought in her life and in our lives and in our journey with so much empathy and compassion came together and support her vision. And that's um, something that we are very proud of, but I know that she will be so very, very, very grateful for it, you know. Again, going back into that support of the family and the people around you. But just going back to the funeral and the coffin and all of that, we brought Abby back with us on that Tuesday from the funeral place. And then on Friday, the funeral director brought the coffin, seven o'clock in the morning. So our lights were on. They say the spirit go through the electricity and we witnessed that. The freezer was going, you know, the, the electricity was off. And then knock on the door. And there it was, the two guys. I went, the, the lights, you know, the electricity has gone off. The fridge, oh my gosh, Appy, you know, with the aircon. And then my brother went out to help and he came in and he goes, it's white. She wanted blue. And then we went, Abs, 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 no, don't worry, don't worry. We're going to have the blue. We're going to paint it. We were all thinking, oh my goodness. It was literally the light was blinking hard. And we brought the coffin into the garage, came in and we said to her, look, it's okay, bub, because our funeral director said they can't get a blue coffin. So we said, that's okay, we'll paint it ourselves. The electricity came back up again. And so that Friday, we had all the kids, we invite all the kids back again, and they all painted her coffin blue, including my son and, you know, her brother and her sister. And then after that, they glue all the Shopkins on her coffin. The last bit of Abby was to dress her up because I wanted the people that was very close to her to have that lasting with her together as a, as a memory. And so I call, you know, my husband was in there, my sister and my brother and my sister-in-law. We were all in there to try and help. And then the last one was having my, my parents were there just to carry her, put our hands under her and carry her and put her in. And then um, then it was like chess, wasn't it? It was chess as well. Then that was... The, the screw that going on. And that last screw was um, was the hardest because that was it. Um, so putting that on and then seal it and then taking it out was, that was the last moment with her. Wow. I think we need to just ask Jess... Do you do something each year? Is there something in particular you do in the house with the kids? I know you have his ashes, Mm. but just briefly give us a little idea of how you memorialise him. Yeah, we've got an award at school, um, the school he went to, and it's for a prep student for showing great care and friendship to others. So it's brilliant at the end of every year, a prep student that doesn't know they're going to get it gets that. So we've got a memorial at school, which is awesome. And just to finish off, which I told my son, Billy, I would, he did voice and communication at school and they had the opportunity for their exam for the end of the year to write something significant that happened in their life. 
and Billy chose to talk about Henry. So to know how your kids cope, I think this just sums up what were we seven or eight years down the track. I was so proud. So he just said, throughout our lives, we meet many people. Some will just be passing acquaintances. Some will become lifelong friends. Some have little impact on us and the way we live our lives. Others have a huge impact and will never be forgotten. Like my brother, Henry, the third child in our family. He's one person who will always hold a special place in my life. At birth, Henry experienced a stroke in utero, which meant he fell under the umbrella of cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy is when the brain is affected by a lack of blood to a certain area of the brain, which eventually dies, limiting the brain capacity. In Henry's case, he lost the ability to walk and talk and had no voluntary movement. He also suffered from cataracts, which is an eye condition, which causes cloudiness in your lenses, limiting your visibility. Henry also suffered from epilepsy, resulting in daily seizures. As kids, my sister and I would call these seizures his brainstorms. Henry was also affected by severe scoliosis, which is a curvature of the spine, and suffered from a permanently dislocated right hip. Also, Henry was peg-fed. Henry had a lifelong battle. He was constantly in and out of intensive care in hospitals. As a result of Henry's needs for medical care, my family has made lifelong friends at the hospitals in Shepparton and at the Royal Children's Hospital. My mum still gets invited to hospitals to speak to the nurses to help them in their development in treating kids like Henry. You might wonder what kind of life Henry had when he was so ill, but Henry attended the same school my sister and I attended and he made lots of friends. The school invested money in making his life and his carer's life as easy as possible. They hired his carer as a school staff member and gave him his own room where he could get changed and take his medication. Sometimes Henry would suddenly fall ill and would need to get an ambulance from school or home. Henry was often in hospitals, whether it be medical appointments or really sick. Henry was flying down to Melbourne via plane many times and endured long and frequent stays at the Royal Children's Hospital. Henry eventually lost the battle of his life at the age of six after he spent a whole month in the Royal Children's Hospital. Henry lived with multiple life-limiting conditions. He was a major part of my childhood and taught me many valuable lessons. Some people might think that growing up with a brother like Henry would just be very hard, but Henry's presence in our lives was so beneficial and taught me lots of valuable lessons. One of these was resilience. Henry was a role model to me because he never gave up. Constantly on the verge of death, he persisted, which was really inspirational. He also taught me how to deal with and interact with people like him with disabilities and how to appreciate the small things in life. My childhood was unique. Not many kids grow up in hospitals, as my sister and I did, and personally, I wouldn't change a thing. Mm, Beautiful. Wonderful. Thank you both. Wow. Brave, honest, moving. Thanks very much for sharing today. No worries. Thanks, Lena. Thanks, Lena. You've been listening to the second season of the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying. The Royal Children's Hospital, together with the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and Palliative Care Australia, would like to thank the parents who've generously taken part in this series. You can search all the episodes online at rch.org.au slash podcasts. I'm Lena Keneva. Thanks for listening. <laughs>